Judges, as I said, chapter 10, verse 3 to verse 5. Hopefully you have an outline in front of you, and I apologize that I didn't quite print as many as I should have done. Uh, but hopefully you'll be able to uh, follow clearly. Now the year is 1992. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, of course, has been sentenced to 16 life sentences. Uh, he's, in, uh, he's been sentenced for rape, for murder, and cannibalism. Uh, the crimes of Jeffrey Dahmer are well documented and they have shaken the world. And when we fast forward just two years after that, we see that while Je- Dahmer is in prison, uh, he gives an interview that he mentions his longing for peace. He longs that God, he longs to have something of peace in his life. And a Christian lady called Mary um, sees that interview. Uh, she watches that interview carefully and she thinks to herself, yes, I do actually know someone that can reach out to you, that can give you what you really need. And she does what a good Christian should do. She writes to Jeffrey Dahmer, this man on 16 life sentences, and she sends him Bibles, and they they get into an exchange of letters. And Dahmer gets these Bibles, he starts reading them, and she sends him more information, and he keeps reading this stuff that Mary keeps sending. Mary gets excited, so she thinks, well, the Lord may be doing your work here. Let me get hold of uh, Pastor Roy uh, Ratcliffe, who lives near that prison where Dama is. And she gets hold of this pastor. And she asks Roy to go and visit Dama in prison. And Roy goes after, <laughs> after a bit of hesitation. It's, uh, it's not an easy thing to visit a person who's on 16 life sentences for rape, murder, and cannibalism, uh, of all things. So he, 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 but eventually, he obeys and he goes there. And the pastor, again, continues to share the gospel now, face to face, with Dama. And Dama, eventually, God shines his light in his dark soul. Dama accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior. God's grace has saved a cannibal, a deranged cannibal. And of course, after a few months, Dama dies. Just a few months after that, he dies. And Dama, of course, is in heaven at this very moment. Exciting stuff. Gospel stuff. How God serves in such an expected way. And we should all rejoice as such a God who serves sinners. But sadly, not everyone was rejoicing. You see, at that time, some professing Christians doubted Dama's conversion. Despite tangible evidence of a changed life, despite first John evidence of what a conversion looks like, many doubted it. Some even went and told Pastor Roy that they didn't understand why he was sharing the gospel with this guy. So some professing Christians were saying, well, this man is just too vile. It's too vile to be forgiven by God. Why are you even doing this? What about the victims? You see, a lot of these people believed in the God of grace for themselves, 
but not a God of the unexpected. Sadly, all of us are like that. We like to limit God in some way, don't we? Can God really use him? Can God really save her? Can God transform that such difficult situation for his glory? All of us can easily find ourselves drawing a line on what God can and cannot do. Drawing a line on who God can serve and use for his glory. But this is why I love the book of Judges. I love the book of Judges because it challenges me. It introduces me to a God who doesn't operate in my little paradigm. It introduces me to a God who's infinitely exciting. The God of the unexpected. In Judges, we see God is repeatedly pushing the limits of his grace and his power as he works in unexpected people in unexpected way. And we've already seen how God has done this. We have seen how God has used a left-handed man, Ayut, to defeat Eglon. We've seen how God has raised up Shanga to kill, I think, 600 Philistines. And we've seen how God has raised up a woman as a prophetess. And who can forget Jael with the tent peg, the, the wife of the Bedouin? God works in an unexpected way. And this evening God is doing is going to do something even more unexpected. Look with me again at verse 3 of Judges chapter 10. And the first truth we learn here in these amazing verses is that God is a God of unexpected grace. Unexpected grace. You see the general pattern of judges, what is the general pattern of judges? The general pattern of judges is judges chapter 2 verse 18 to verse 19. Let me read those verses. Judges chapter 2, verse 18 to verse 19 says this. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But listen to this. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn way. That is a general pattern of judges. God is with the judge, the judge dies, sin returns. But in, if we go back to Judges chapter 10, verse 3, we see something unexpected. We see the exception that proves the rule. What is the exception? Look at verse 3 of Judges chapter 10. After him, who is him? Tola, who we looked at in the morning. After Tola arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel for 22 years. Notice that between verse 2 and verse 3, there's no sin. There is no idolatry that has, has crept in. This is the only time in Judges, I would say, where we have a perfect handover of social and spiritual order from a long-time long time serving judge to another long-time serving judge. A man of 23 years as a judge to 22 years as a judge. Now, I know later on we'll see Jephthah handover power, well, 
dies and Ebaz, Ebazan takes over. And we see Ebazan replaced by Elon. And we see Elon replaced by Abdon. But those are short tenures of judges. They are actually not characteristic of a land of blessings. They are more characteristic of a land of many rulers. And stable times after Jephthah is the context there. But here in verse 10, here at the beginning, we see a perfect Andover. We have exceptional grace. 23 years replaced by 22 years of peace. What we have here is Tola's great success carried on by Jair. Notice that, as I said, the combined years there is what? 45 years. And as we noted this morning, that 45 years is going to continue until verse 6, when sin returns to Israel after Abimelech. Sin returns. It's now been interrupted for 45 years, but it's going to return in verse 6, and war, of course, will be on the gates again. But between now and then, we have peace with God and peace with one another. First taller and now Jer. There's peace, shalom. The land of Canaan is resting from war and bloodshed, from within and no foreign oppressors. Village life is no more. People are sitting out in the sun. Relationships which were ruined under Abimelech, they are long now gone. Life, wounds have been healed. Everyone is getting along. And of course, this is what God had graciously planned for his people. Deuteronomy 12, verse 8 to 10 says this. If you flick back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 8 to 10, it says this. What did God plan for his people in Deuteronomy? It says, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Sounds like judges. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But listen to verse 10. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is going to give you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies so that you live in safety. God had always planned them to come into a land of rest, to live under the safety, under his banner. But sin had ruined that. But now we see for these 45 years, these people who don't deserve it, now enjoy shalom, enjoy peace. God has now brought unexpected grace through Tola and Jair's 45-year reign, after three years of madness under Abimelech. The God of the Bible is the God of unexpected grace. And this is good news for all of us here, because what? All of us here desperately need the grace of God in our lives. You know, I've often quoted Andrew Peterson's song, uh, The Last Frontier, uh, which pictures a very hopeless situation where he has fallen in this pit. And the song says, My heart is black as coal. It's been mined and there is no gold. And it's so dark in there. But I don't care. I'll lay down in this empty hole where my heart is as black as coal. There is nowhere left for me to go from here. I have fallen past the last frontier. And Andrew Peterson, that wonderful song, gives a picture of all human beings, isn't it? We are in our nature rebels against God. Sin has left us in a dark pit, 
in a life of hopelessness. As George Bennett Shaw says, we are all living a life of quiet desperation. Or as Paul says to the church at Ephesus, we are without God and without hope in the world. And we all of us here as sinners, we sense this pit we are in everywhere. Sin has left us emotionally, physically, socially, and spiritually damaged. We are trapped in a pit. By hearing judges, we meet our only hope. The God of unexpected grace. He alone can save us from the pit we are in. In Judges, as we said this morning, we find God pursuing sinners to save them. And in Jesus, God has pursued you. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are no longer in the pit. You have climbed, God has climbed you out of the pit. God has come to your pit and he has lifted you up from the miry bogs of sin. And this amazing grace of God, the unexpected grace, is available to everyone right now in this room. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't come to that position of total surrender, God in Christ offers to cleanse you from sin, to lift you up from that miry bowl and save you for himself. That is the unexpected grace of judges, a God who brings shalom to us. That's the first truth we learn here. We learn of unexpected grace. The second thing we learn here is unexpected means. God is a God of unexpected means. Uh, This unexpected grace of God we just talked about has come wrapped in what? In an unexpected instrument. Notice here that the Bible identifies the judge in verse 3 there as simply Jair the Gileadite. Let's read it again, verse 3. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel for 22 years. Gilead, you should know something about Gilead. What is Gil- Gilead is the central and northern part of Israel's territory, east of the Jordan. That's important. There, it is on the other side of the Jordan. Okay? It is the old tribal allotment of Gad and East Manasseh. Now, Jair is actually the first judge to serve on the east side of the Jordan. That alone is unexpected, because where are, where are most tribes? Most tribes are on the west side of the Jordan. But Jair has been appointed by God there to serve there. Uh, it should be on the most centrally allocated places, you know, where Deborah and others serve. But no, he's serving on the east. And there's a good reason for that. He's from the land of Gilead. The land of Gilead is a land excellent for grazing. You know, the Israelites actually acquired Gilead on their way into Canaan after defeating the Amorite kings who lived in Gilead. And it is for good reason, it's good, because you remember the two tribes of East Manasseh and Gad, they didn't even want to go into the promised land after uh, getting into Gilead. They just wanted to stay there, and Moses had to persuade them to come along first, to do the work, and then they could remain in Gilead. It's a wonderful land. It's a land which is well-blessed for agriculture. Gilead is a place that promises prosperity. 
And it seems Jair here has fully realized its potential. He is a rich man with a large family. Look at verse 4. And he, that is Jair, had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Haboth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this first time, you kind of think, if you read this without context, you're like, you think this doesn't look very good. I mean, this is a bad sign. This guy is ostentatious and is dangerously worldly. That's what we think. But you must read it in context and understand that the Bible here doesn't offer any criticism of Jair whatsoever. There is no mention of any of that. In fact, there's no idolatry in Israel. There's no abuse of power when Jair is there because sin comes in verse 6. His sons, of course, are riding famous, are famous riding on donkeys. But remember, these are donkeys, not war horses. That's important. Verse 4 again. And there are 30 cities called Abotjer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. The donkey in the Bible is not an animal of war. Jesus comes riding on a donkey in Jerusalem because a donkey, as Zechariah reminds us, signifies peace. And also note something else in the Bible. Having 30 sons, a large family in the Bible, is not always criticized. Actually, the Bible tends to mention that often as a sign of prosperity as well as divine blessing. I'm not saying that I work towards 30. I'm simply saying when the Bible uses it casually, it's another way of saying this person had received divine blessing and was being blessed. Yes, Jair is a bit kingly here, but we should understand the context as conveying, in fact, God's faith. And this drives us to the main point of this passage. You see, Jair is not like Gideon. Jair has the, it seems to have lots of children like Gideon, but Jair here is portrayed as different from Gideon. He, he's a man who maintains peace and sin doesn't enter until verse 6. In fact, the point of this passage is that Jair is not the person we expect him to be. God has used a rich person as an instrument of his work in Israel. Is the unexpected means. He's rich and he's powerful and is doing the work of God. That is the unexpected means. Now, I don't know. I don't expect many of you here to know who Kathy Ireland is. Uh, but when I was a young man, when I was a young man, all young men of my uh, age, yes, when I was young, I used to be young, uh, all young men of my age knew who Kathy Island was. She was an iconic supermodel when I was young. And uh, today, of course, Kathy Island, uh, you think of Cindy Crawford and those old models, uh, Kathy Island was in around that era, of course. Today, Kathy Island is one of the richest women in the world. Her success was reviewed by Forbes in 2012. She's worth billions thanks to her fashion lines. 
But there's a lot more to Kathy Ireland than material success. Kathy Ireland is, in fact, a real Christian. She became a Christian, I believe, at the age of 18. She would, what we would say, certainly last time I read her story, she was worth 1.7 billion, but I think she's gone be more than that. She is a Christian billionaire. You read and watch about Kathy, of course, online. You can read her story on that wonderful book, in what wonderful collection of videos called I Am Second of Christians Who Are Living for God, celebrity. Many of them tend to be celebrities. Kathy Ann is somebody who's very rich, perhaps richer than, of jail proportions. And yet God has saved her and God is using her to steal for him for his glory. This that should not surprise us. Why? Because the unexpected grace of God is available to everyone, even Kathy. God works in ways we don't expect. And this is a challenge to us as a church, isn't it? Because if Jay walked in this church right now, we'll probably think, here goes the guy, he's too corrupted by his wealth. I mean, the car he's driving is too expensive. Uh, he's not living rad- radical enough. I mean, he should be giving some of that wealth away. This guy is an executive. I mean, look at him. He can't really be a follower of Jesus, we would probably think. We would say, well, does he even have enough time to read about the strict Baptists? I mean, he's just too rich and too busy. But you see, just as Deborah and Jael challenged us not to look at our gender, and the AU challenged us not to look at our disability, Jael is also screaming at us in a strange way. He's saying, look, do not look at my wallet. Look at the God who can use the rich and the poor for his glory. And yes, the Bible warns us that riches can corrupt. The Lord Jesus warned us about that. And we might encounter that as we go through Mark from July. There's a danger with wealth that we may start trusting in money rather than God. And it's very interesting when you hear Kathy Allen give an interview about what it means to be a radical Christian. And how she thought she was living for God and then God convicted her that she was trusting in money rather than him. And she can speak about that. It's quite interesting. The danger of money is always there. I also want to suggest that poverty has its own dangers. But perhaps money much more. And yet we see at the same time that grace abounds for the chiefest of sinners and the richest of sinners and the poorest of sinners. And this is particularly important for us as a church located in an area that has many affluent parts. You know, sometimes when I give out flyers, I mean, when I give out flyers there, I would do that over Christmas, I think, wow, these guys are so rich. I mean, am I wasting my time dropping a flyer here? These guys have no time to even read the local newspapers, um, let alone our flyers. But you see this passage reminds us such thinking is misguided. Not only is the grace of God unexpected, that flyer, it seems, may be for a rich evangelist down the road. God simply doesn't just injure. We see God not only saving the rich, but God using the rich. He uses jail for 
his own glory. God has saved many rich people. Indeed, we would say many of the richest people spend their time and money searching for meaning. Because when you're at the top, you now start asking. You've got money, but you, you need something more. You realize money that we all want to have in general is not enough. And so the rich needs the gospel and actually wants to hear the gospel, I would say. Even though sometimes they don't know it, as well as the poor. And the message of judges here is that God's grace is bigger than us. He works in unexpected ways. And the rich are not outside his plan. The gospel is for them too. And God can use those who are rich for his glory. So as a church, we must learn to look for the unexpected work of grace in unexpected places. It may be in a manger or it may be in a palace. That's the second point, isn't it? We've seen there that God uh, works in unexpe- through unexpected means. The final points we see in this passage, I think it points us to, of course, unexpected Jesus. God is our unexpected Savior in Jesus. Notice there, verse 5 says what? And Jair died and was buried in Camon. For all his power, all his wealth, all his affluence. I mean, here is a man who is serving God and has power and influence. You think Jair is the answer, wouldn't you? But no, our rich judge, righteous judge, is not the answer. Like all the judges we've been learning in Judges, he's just for all his power, for all his 30 donkeys and 30 cities. He's just a signpost to the greater judge, Jesus of Nazareth. And how does Jair here point us to Jesus? Well, as I was reading this, you may be tempted to perhaps, well, perhaps Jair points us to Jesus with a donkey. <laughs> you may be tempted to say that. Perhaps Jair is pointing us, pointing us forward to Jesus not in the first advent, but in the second advent. I don't know if you're pre-millennial, you might start dreaming up some stuff like that. I'm pre-millennial, I'm not dreaming up stuff like that. But what I would say is that Jair, I think, simply points us to Jesus by the fact that, like Jair, Jesus comes to us in a way we do not expect. It's that simple. Jesus, like Jair, came in the way people did not expect. Uh, every Advent time, I always find the song that I really like. Uh, and one of the songs I've been really enjoying listening to is a new song by Anna Kerr. Uh, she has a wonderful new song called Emmanuel, which reflects on the unexpected Jesus. And, and, and in, in this new EP she's released, she's got, there's a song, she says this in that Emmanuel song. She says this about Jesus. She says, he was not the one we thought would come. We were looking for a king, but he didn't come in glory. The author of the oceans and the sun, still he chose to be written in our story. So he could fill our flesh and blood. And we could know his love. Emmanuel, a manger for a bed. No crown upon his head. 
He came like us instead, Emmanuel. I thought as I thought about those words of Anna, they capture beautifully what we learned this morning, that what? Jesus is our ordinary saviour. And that is actually what makes him our unexpected saviour. That's how these verses wonderfully link together if we had preached them over Christmas. The ordinariness of God is so unexpected. You see, the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah were clear. But when Jesus arrived, the way he fulfilled them beat our expectations. And there are many ways of this. But consider, for example, that the Bible prophesied that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But no one expected it to be in the manger of all places. Bethlehem, yes. Manger, unexpected. The Bible prophesied that the Messiah would usher in a new kingdom. But no one expected it to be an upside kingdom. Prostitutes, thieves, and drunkards. Oh, welcome into this kingdom. I mean, we can go on. You see, Jesus has come as prophesied, but not in the way we expect, and for reasons we didn't expect him to come. He has not come to meet my expectation, your expectation. He has come to save you from sin. And he has done this with a love that you do not expect. God, the Son, has died on the cross for your sins. Not just to take away your sins away, but to plug you into the very life of God. So that you may be filled with all his power and his grace every day. And this is important because, friends, it means that if you are in Jesus now, you are in partnership with the God of the unexpected. I soon pause there. <laughs> if you are with Jesus, you are now in partnership with the God of the unexpected. So you should expect the unexpected if you have a relationship with God. Your life now is actually an adventure of discovery, as I like to call it. And part of this means that some of your expectations of how your life should be like, will not be met. Because you're now partnered with the God of the unexpected. Sometimes what you expect God to give you is below his standard. You want the best life now. God says, I am what you need, not a new car. (laughs) You need me, not a new car. Sometimes what you expect God not to bring in your life is what he will bring in your life because he knows what is truly good for you. You don't want to lose your job. You don't want a difficult spouse. You don't want to be sick. You don't want to struggle. You don't want difficult neighbors. But God says that is the unexpected ways I work to forge you into a person that I want you to be. I want you to grow in trusting me, not in other things. That's very humbling. As a pastor, I don't want any difficult members. Come on, get right with God quickly. But that's how God works, in unexpected ways. And of course, in this life, there is the world and the devil all working to ruin our lives. 
by the message of judges is that if you are in Jesus, God is in control of everything. And so you can be confident that in these unexpected moments of life are all part of an exciting adventure, an exciting adventure of a life with God. We should see our Christian life as a life of discovery. Asking and wonder what God is up to because we are now partnered with the unexpected God. Yes, it will be painful. Yes, some of these disappointments will, some of the things will disappoint, some of the decisions God makes. But He's doing it for our good. So we should surrender every situation in our lives to Him. Let this God of the unexpected, the God of Jair, who serves us in ways we do not expect, lead you in the year ahead. Amen.